episode 363 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we are about to express do not reflect the opinions of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, our, even our pets. But we've got a, a, a great lineup of news commentators today. Paul Rosenzweig from Red Branch Consulting, Nate Jones from Culper Partners, and Jamil Jaffer from the National Security Institute. I'm Stuart Baker, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Why don't we start with a really detailed and I have to say kind of brutal New York Times article about Apple's compromises with the Chinese government over things that Apple is trying to define itself by in the United States, privacy and resistance to government overreach. Paul, what did you think was most interesting about that story? I'm going to answer that two ways, Stuart. The first way is kind of at the 10,000 foot level. What's really interesting is that the story confirms what most of us have understood, but never really internalized, which is that there's a, a really significant deep disconnect between Apple's uh, public relations messaging here in the United States and in the West more generally, and how it acts in China. I think when I tweeted this, I said, Apple's like the portrait of Dorian Gray with the portrait stored behind the great firewall. Yeah, I, I mean, that's fair and accurate. I mean, in many ways, as a you know pro-business type person, I don't begrudge Apple the concessions it makes to get business in China. Their job is to make money. And if that's what it takes to get into the business, God bless them for their shareholders, of which I am one. But it... Apple has, as you've said, tried to paint themselves in America as the great protectors of privacy, including, for example, their recent changes that have put them at deep odds with Facebook over, over the cross-platform sharing of data. So there's a real disconnect in their messaging that's going to trouble them quite a bit if the stories that the New York Times tells get any traction in the American public, and the American public doesn't like hypocrites, really. The other thing that, coming down from the 10,000 foot to the 2,000 foot level, is how deeply they they have compromised yeah, in terms of granting China access to data that they store, data localization rule. The way I read it, pretty much any Apple user in China is an open book to the Chinese government if the Chinese government wants it. And that's surprising to me. I would have thought Apple would have had at least a little bit of restriction. And it seems very much like they don't. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. They It looks as though they've changed their encryption at the government's behest. And even if they hadn't, the keys are almost certainly available to the government. They've turned over the data to a third party, government owned third party, it's a local government, but I don't think that matters uh, as much in China as it might here. And it looks as though they did it kind of ironically so that they could get out from under an interpretation of US law that they'd adopted before that, which is that they aren't allowed to share information about 
subscribers under U.S. law in the absence of a U.S. government subpoena. Uh, and so they had to say to the Chinese, you need to go through the MLAT process. Good luck with that, uh, with the U.S. government. And in order to say, now that rule applies to electronic communications providers. And now I think they must be saying, we're not an electronic communications provider or we're not providing the data somebody else is. We just let them take it. Yeah, I, I, I think it's probably the latter. I mean, I'd love to see the legal analysis that that the Apple lawyers have gone through to see how they square that circle. It's I'm also wondering, you know, if anybody's gonna find a way to find standing to challenge that since it since all the victims are Chinese, it seems I, I don't know if we're going to be able to create a third-party standing oh, here in the U.S. somehow. It, it, they, the victims are people who bought phones in China, right? I, and and so you could go to China, buy a phone, bring it back, and sue. I, that that may not that may be. I, that's a, not a bad idea. Why don't you make that trip, Stuart? Because I might not come back. <laughs> I've given away the game, <laughs> Jamil. Yeah, Stuart. I mean, obviously, this is uh, it's obviously a, a very challenging situation. You have a situation where Apple pushed back on the FBI back during the uh, San Bernardino bombing of a, with a known terrorist or sorry, San Diego attack uh, with a known terrorist, a dead terrorist, pushed back and giving access to an iPhone and now apparently has been giving broad based access to iCloud and the like and other data uh, to uh, to the Chinese government. But it's not unusual. We saw this back with Yahoo back in the mid 2000s when Yahoo was actively fighting the U.S. government on 70, the predecessor statute 702, the Protect America Act, all the while handing over dissident information on dissidents in China to the Chinese. And so I think that I think that Paul is right that this will turn on whether this gets resonance here in the United States. There's a lot of reasons to think it won't, in part because Americans seem very concerned about their own privacy, but less concerned about about the privacy of others. And so while I while I take Paul's point that that the American people don't love what they might see as as hypocrisy, they don't seem to be willing to make people pay the price. And let's be candid. People love the products that Apple provides. I've got eight of them sitting around me right now. At one time I was just, in fact, as we got on this, on uh, this podcast, I was extolling the virtues of the AirPods Pro. So, and I'm as hawkish that they come on these things. And yet I have, I bought, I bought two iPads last week. So, so I guess the question is, will people vote with their feet? And I think the answer is probably no. All right. Let's turn to the other hot policy issue that is actually starting to bite ordinary Americans, which is ransomware. Uh, this time, this week, the story is more the hospitals, whether they're in Vermont or Ireland, that are being hit by ransomware attacks. And it looks as though those attacks are actually a response by the ransomware gangs to past disruptions of other criminal activity by the U.S. government. Paul, are we ending up with problems in our hospitals because we took down botnets six months or a year ago? It may very well be the case. Criminals are uh, uniquely variable and malleable. If, if we close one door, they'll find another. There's no end to the creativity of those who want to steal money. What I think we are on the cusp of, actually, is the start of a conflict between the governments of the world, not just America, but of the world and the ransomware gangs that will remind us a lot strategically of the conflict between uh, the U.S. government and the Cosa Nostra, the mafia, you know, back in the 80s and 90s in organized crime. We'll wind up obviously deploying completely different tools, and we can talk a little bit about that if you want, but the criminal 
ransomware gangs think that they've found a weak spot and they're going to keep hitting. I mean, look, the dark side people walked away with what, $90 million or? Yeah. Yeah. And and they got to shut it down on their own terms. Right. Uh, Well, you know, it's interesting. I I read an analysis that suggested that Putin might have shut them down because they had too great an effect on the U.S. But even leaving that aside, $90 million is a good week's work. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. And they'll probably start up under a different name with slightly different TTPs. uh, And they'll have plausible deniability, or at least most people will have trouble saying these are the same folks. And the Biden administration, which probably doesn't know what it's going to do with Russia over ransomware, will have a reason not to do anything. Nate, there's a lot of people saying that we should do is ban ransomware payments. That's pretty controversial, even among security hawks. Do you think there's any likelihood that a White House would do that? I I think it's pretty unlikely. It's a pretty dramatic step. I tend to be one of those who is in favor of it, but it just seems like it would be too controversial. I mean, but, you know, as you're saying earlier, as this starts to really impact people's lives directly, the pressure will grow to do something about it. And when you look at the tools at your disposal, you have relatively few. And some of those, whether when you're talking about actual physical disruptions of these networks going in and arresting people, it requires the cooperations of, of countries like Russia and some of the places where these yahoos are located. And they've been pretty careful about where they impose these consequences on their victims. And Russia isn't one of the places they're typically targeting. And so despite creating incentives for action in the U.S., we lack some of those same incentives in the very places where we need people to go arrest these people. And so you're really left with these kind of technical disruptions and naming and shaming and things like that that aren't always terribly effective or going after the payments. I mean, I think one one area you could see them get into if this gets bad enough is to the reliance of these types of people on cryptocurrencies and, and things that are untraceable. Go after those things, not in trying to shut them down, but in regulating them in ways that disincentivizes their use and just makes it a, a little bit tougher to to hide their tracks. Well, if you were expecting regulation of cryptocurrency, this was a good week for you. Paul, did you want to uh, uh, talk uh, about that? Three three quick points. The first is banning the payments won't stop them any more than banning black market stops black market. But what it will do is make it really hard for, for people like you and me and Nate and Jamil to give advice because we, we will be unable to, to, participate in illegal activity. So that's going to, so it, it's a marginal thing. The second thing I would say is that it's not just governments. I, I, I think that one of the ways that we may see a change is, is private sector action, not in banning payments, but in refusing. ACSA, the insurer in France, has announced that it's not going to, it's no longer going to write ransomware insurance payment policies. And no money, no, no ransom, no ransomware, right? And then the there was ransomware before insurance, but the insurance, the development of insurance has probably increased ransom demands by a factor of 10. And then the third thing that, that you know, what you really need to do is get like Nick Weaver on because he's in favor of destroying cryptocurrency altogether. Uh, and there's a, a solid argument to be made that it's one of those few things whose social utility is less uh, and less apparent every day. 
<laughs> well, you know, it, it is, of course, a, a spurring all kinds of crime and attacks uh, on hospitals and the like, but at least it's warming the planet, right? <laughs> exactly right. It's warming the planet. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. I don't want to jump to what governments are doing about this, but th this story is a, a remarkable one. A, an old cold fire, a coal fired plant up in New York uh, has been refitted and uh, is running again, producing electricity principally using natural gas instead of coal, which is, I guess, a step forward. But mainly they're doing it so that they can mine cryptocurrency, so they can run their data center, finding new, solving new problems, producing new proof of work. Uh, and I, that is, it's basically Bitcoin economy has said, Proof of work is how you will turn your, establish the value of your cryptocurrency, which means they basically are paying people to run these fossil fuel power plants at uh, high rates and they're paying them in Bitcoin. It's, it is really a, it's a dumb social development from the point of view of anybody but the miners. I, it, I, I, Bitcoin's energy consumption annually now matches that of Argentina. I, I read another study. It exceeds all the positive benefit of energy produced by solar and wind and other green technologies. So it is more ecologically damaging than almost anything else we've done in the last five years. It's, it blows my mind to create something that it doesn't really exist. Digital currency with a hypothetical value that nobody can actually cash out to. Yep. And if you tried to cash out, you, you should have done it last week, but uh, yes. or a week before that, because uh, it's uh, it's dropped about fifty percent. So what are the what are governments doing? Beijing did something. Hong Kong did something. The Treasury did something. What's the quick tour of government approaches to cryptocurrency? Uh, okay, a Treasury Department has done a few things. First off, they've reminded everybody about the OFAC requirements that you shouldn't deal with people who are illegal, some of whom may actually be the, the, the ransomware guys, and that might be the way that they go further with more listings when if we circle back to making ransomware payments illegal. That's kind of how it'll happen, I think. Treasury has issued guidance, as has that increases the regulatory requirements for cryptocurrency traders. Hong Kong wants a know your customer, essentially registration requirement. I, I think this is governments trying to deploy the machinery of their traditional regulatory regimes to, to a space that doesn't really fit very well. I'm not sure how successful they're going to be in the end. But that's a, a real question because, of course, there's a race to the bottom phenomenon. Uh, if you don't regulate cryptocurrency, lots of cryptocurrency companies will want to locate inside your territory. And so there, there's an incentive to be a little less aggressive than your neighbor. Right. It, 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 it's the traditional Delaware corporation and corporation question writ large. And that's okay. That's what competition's all about. But... I suspect that the governments are pretty soon going to see the use, utility of uh, a uniform or more uniform approach. Actually, I'll make this prediction for you. Watch, rants, watch cryptocurrency regulation be tied to President Biden's uniform international corporate tax negotiations. Oh, yes, it could easily happen. And because the, the experience of the big 
taxing jurisdictions is they can squash the the little guys and force them to adhere to the rules that the big guys set. As long as they call it money laundering, they can pretty much force everybody onto one playbook. That's my guess. All right. Okay, FISA is languishing un with without having been renewed, uh, and it's probably losing steam rather than gaining it because increasingly people on the right are suspicious of the power of investigators, including national security investigators. Uh, in that context, the judge, the chief judge of the FISA court has once again, this actually, he didn't do that. He did this long ago, but it was, uh, his opinion was just released saying that despite the fact that the FBI still has a lot of violations, he's not going to do anything other than tell them to fix the violations. At least that's how I read the, the opinion. Nate, what's the background here and, and what did he actually rule? Yeah, no, I think that's a pretty fair encapsulation. They've had this long-running history of various compliance problems, querying data improperly, some improper acquisitions at times. And because of this, the FISC has been the target of criticism for repeatedly, as you said, reauthorizing the surveillance program under Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act. And those critics essentially are, are arguing that because of these repeated compliance problems, the court should be, if not thinking about it, actually rejecting these authorizations and refusing to, to allow the program to go forward. There was actually a what I thought was a pretty thoughtful blog post on, on Lawfare explaining the court's decision in some of this broader context. And, and the thrust of it was essentially that the court in this role is more of an overseer than an overruler. And I think that's right. The court under the statute is presented with these applications and accompanying procedures on targeting, minimization, querying, and the like. And under the statute, they're directed to authorize these things unless the application and these procedures are in violation of the statute or the, the Constitution. And so these these compliance issues that the FBI is experiencing, some of them pretty pervasive, are relevant to that analysis. But if they don't rise to the level of of clearly making these procedures and the application a violation of the Constitution or the statute itself, the court sort of has to reauthorize this program. Now, it I think your perspective on this sort of depends on, on your baseline for analysis. When this program was created back in the day by Congress, and I, in full disclosure, I was working there on one of the committees of jurisdiction at the time, it was pretty well understood that there would be incidental collection of Americans' data at times, but they clearly said you can't specifically target Americans under Section 702. And they, I think they also pretty well understood the role they were giving the court in this context. And part of the reason was they looked at it from the perspective of all of this stuff being brought under FISA and requiring individual applications as being an anomaly that had resulted from mainly technological changes that were occurring around that same time and wanting to... I think in their view, go back to a situation where they could target these people for electronic surveillance without any court oversight or approval at all. And what they got was a middle ground here where 
they're allowed to target them programmatically, but with court oversight. And if you look at it from that perspective, it looks a heck of a lot better than what existed before it. But yeah, I, I, but it's, it, the problem is that it was a very limited grant, and so the court can, if if you have individual violations of the rules. I, those don't fit neatly into the review the court is doing. The court is supposed to be asking, are these rules legal or not? And a rule that says, don't target people, don't go looking for people without a national security reason in this database is a perfectly legal rule. And then if somebody at the FBI screws up and queries the database, what do you do? That was a violation of the rules, but the rules were legal. So you can't knock down the edifice because there've been violations of the rules. That's right. I mean, the court does have some power and it's used that power in the past. It has found that some of these proposed procedures did not comply with the law and put the program on hold. And it can impose, in some cases, even consequences on individuals who appear before the court. And and there was a, a case a couple of decades ago where the court felt like it was being led by, misled by the Bureau and actually barred some people from appearing before it. And so it does have a role in making sure these rules are abided by and trying to keep the Bureau in line and continually telling them to go back and fix these problems and make sure they're fixed and expend the necessary resources to do it. But as you said, that does not rise to the level of actually shutting down the program entirely. So two points. Uh, first, that Lawfare blog post was George Croner, who used to work at NSA. And I agree with you. It was very thoughtful and moderate and provided a perspective that is not found in, in the press very often. Second, it is true that the, the court shut down some and barred from appearing before it to some people because it found they had made misrepresentations. That is not a moment of glory for the FISA court. That was the thing that persuaded the FBI that it had to observe with enormous strictness uh, the wall between intelligence and law enforcement, which meant that the people who were doing law enforcement investigations of, among others, Al-Qaeda and the FBI were not allowed to go looking for the Al-Qaeda terrorists who came here to engage in the 9-11 attacks, and we didn't find them until they flew into the building. That was a, a remarkably aggressive action by the FISA court, and it turned out about as bad as anything could. So I would never turn to that as an indication of how the FISA court wisely uses the powers that it's been given. All right, I, I, let's talk antitrust, because everybody uh, in tech is. Uh, in fact, everybody who matters in tech is already being sued for antitrust violations. And Europe is really leading the, uh, the charge here. Jamil, just a couple of stories last week indicating very aggressive action on the part of antitrust regulators in Europe. That's exactly right. Uh, Google was hit with a $123 million antitrust fine in Italy over their auto application keeping out uh, a company, an app called Juice Pass, made by a company called NLX Italia. Amazon is apparently going to be tested in Germany in an early in an early test of their their antitrust powers. And then we've we've obviously heard what's going on with respect to the the Apple versus Epic antitrust trial. And what I think what really this Europe these European cases though highlight is antitrust in Europe is being utilized as a weapon 
against American companies, right? We've seen this behavior by Europe before GDPR in a lot of ways. It, it purports to be on privacy rights, but it is used almost exclusively to go after American companies, or at least aggressively after American companies for these large turnover rents that they're seeking to extract. And you see things like the Digital Markets Act, right? Where there's a pressure by the European Commission, the European Union to put more pressure on American companies. These are not laws that are being enforced evenly across the border, even laws that are even purport to be enforced evenly. And what's odd about this to me, though, Stuart, is this all comes at a time, right? All this antitrust action, all this privacy-related focus on American companies, all these uh, sort of market manipulative, market manipulating efforts by the European Union against the U.S. at a time when the U.S. and the Europe should actually be joining hands to deal with the real China problem. And I mean, the, the reality is that the real threat to all of us in our economies is not one another. It is the Chinese looming threat on the horizon. We see these, these massive trade deals that China is doing with Iran in the region. And what doesn't seem to be happening is the U.S. and Europe getting together and saying, hey, you know what? Tech innovation is good for our countries, good for our alliance across the Atlantic. We should promote tech innovation in the United States and in Europe, right? And not be fighting with one another, one another over what are ultimately small things, right? And instead, what we ought to be doing is really pushing back against the Chinese and recognizing them for what they are, this IP stealing, right, a subsidizing beast that's making an effort to just undermine all of our overall economies. And so I, maybe it's too much hope for, but I'm looking towards the G7 in, in June, the Biden administration coming with a newly renewed sort of diplomatic effort and hoping that we can try to find common cause on all manner of things, including the never ending debate over privacy shield and, and discussion between us and, and the Europe over privacy shield. So and I, 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 I am a deeply skeptical uh, uh, person when it comes to the European Union. And I think their business model, since they were formed in the 50s, the European common market, was designed to give the U.S. some assurance on national security grounds, maybe lip service, maybe more, while treating us as the, the main enemy on economic matters and treating us as the main enemy on economic matters is still part of Europe's DNA and their commitment to a national security alliance is much less than it was in the 50s or the 60s. Uh, so I think you've got a hard sell there to get them to, uh, to make any compromises on these issues and especially to be candid when all the things that they are saying about Silicon Valley we're saying too. Well, so Stuart, I think there's two things we said about the Europeans, right? One is it doesn't have to be about national security for them. Let's talk about economic security. Making an alliance with us against China is much smarter than us, the US and the EU, going at the China problem alone. We're going to lose if we do not come together as an Atlantic alliance against the Chinese. That's number one. So about economic security. Number two, let's talk about values. I mean, it, we share whatever you might think about what our tech companies do or what their tech companies don't do and why they're using these, these laws against us, right? The reality is we share a lot more in values than we're ever gonna share with the Chinese, whether it's on human rights, right? The Uyghurs, right? Free expression. I mean, you, Hong Kong, you name it. We share a lot more values than they do with, uh, between us all across the Atlantic than we do with the Chinese. And yet, it's, so it seems crazy to be going what about these small ball, I mean, who cares about small ball antitrust when we've got this massive, economic and value juggernaut on the horizon. I mean, call me crazy, but the US and the EU and our other allies and the Brits need to come together. I mean, this is just silly behavior to go after one another over ticky tack nonsense. All right, I, I will call you crazy, but don't let Paul do it. No, no, we, I mean, I, I, the logic of what you say is 100% true, 
Jamil. And Stuart and I and you have been saying that to our European friends, and they are friends in a personal way. We've been saying it to them since 2001, if not before. And we haven't made the sale yet. And so there's something over there that just doesn't get it. So they listen to their companies and their companies are still in Germany. The car companies are doing really well in China and they can't afford to lose that market. I think that's, they're in the same position that Apple is in. They cannot let that golden goose die. Uh, and, and so they may not like what's happening in China, but they're just going to shut up about it. That's my guess. And so they're not going to be vocal in picking these fights. Whereas they know there are real limits to what the U.S. is going to do to them over things like the Android for Autos uh, app market. Maybe that has to change. Maybe that has to change. Yeah. Maybe we got to well, punch back harder. PNR is the PNR and uh, 702 data and, and data exports is a place where their economic rules are going to endanger Americans and Europeans who are trying to find terrorists. Uh, uh, and that's a place where I would have hoped that the Biden administration would get its act together and deliver some hard news to the Europeans about the kinds of compromises Europe's going to have to make. I, there's no sign that they're doing that yet. This is the first administration really since Bush doesn't seem to care that much about keeping up the structures of counterterrorism. Although the Trump administration wasn't great about it, they at least, they coasted on fumes. This administration is out of fumes. And you, I don't necessarily agree with all of that, Stuart, but you make an important point there, which is in talking to Europe on this China stuff, you have to find messages that appeal to them and are going to incentivize them to act and pushing back on antitrust i'm just not sure is one you're going to find an open door on i think it presumes that you think bigger is better and that and there i think that's just an argument that they're not going to buy and, and as Stuart said they have important industries to try to protect for themselves and so i think you know if you're going to try to motivate them you're going to have to look elsewhere most likely all right, speaking about uh, all those First Amendment uh, free speech values that uh, we treasure so, Apple is going to let Parler back on the iPhone, maybe, but in a special edition where you used to be able to buy books that had been banned in Boston. Now you'll be able to read tweets that have been banned on the iPhone, but which are not banned potentially on Android. Nate, what was the deal that seemed to have been struck? When Apple and, and others took action against Parler, they made it very clear that they did not want them to, they didn't want to do business with, with a company like Parler, <clears throat> which is their prerogative, if they're not going to moderate hate speech and incitement of violence and things like that. And that re that resulted in Parler's banishment. And now they're back, as you say, in a sanitized version of their app and, and the iOS store. And they've gone ahead and, and adjusted their moderation policies to include hate speech and, and incitement of violence. I think there are going to be two questions that remain here. I mean, Apple is signaling here, I think, that they're, they were not, as, as some had suggested, motivated here by conservative bias. And when Parler did exactly what they asked them to, they let them back in. And the question is, for Apple, who effectively are gonna, they going to moderate this type of content? How is Parler going to interpret those terms? 
and is it going to be good enough over time? And the second question is, what effect is this going to have on uptake in Parler's iOS app? I mean, it's clear that Parler's heart's not in it, right? As you said, they're not taking the step in in the Google Play Store because there are workarounds for people and they want the unvarnished hate speech and incitement of violence on their platform in the first place. <laughs> You're editorializing yeah. there. Uh, <laughs> but they, they do think that Apple's definition of hate speech is too constrained. Too broad. Yeah. And so for them, what is how appealing is this app going to be in the iOS app store? And and it's important for people to remember that parlor stripes aren't changing because of this, right? They're going to, in every other medium, be, continue to operate they were the way they were before. And so this is a very limited change that they've managed so to get me, some me, half a decent press you, off of. Let me but. push you a little on this is their prerogative. We've just gotten through a long discussion of all of the antitrust doctrines that are all aimed at the idea that you can abuse your platform where you are basically riding free on the fact that you have assembled customers and suppliers and you're taking a cut from everybody and that that can be an abuse of a dominant position deserves regulation. That's what they're doing in Italy. That's probably what they're doing in Germany. That's really what the judge is signaling in the Apple versus Epic fight. So I can see justifying a uh, set of security standards on what you allow into your store. I can even see saying we don't want to become a porn distribution store. But, you know, people who don't like what's said on Parler. I uh, don't have to download it. So it's not as though their iPhone is being tainted by what other people see are seeing on their iPhone. So you have to make a, a much different argument to justify Apple's decision to get into the content moderation business. I'm not sure how it's different from pornography, to be honest. And I, I don't view this as, I view it, I guess, qualitatively different from the kind of payments or things that are incentivized by financial motivations and potentially anti-competitive, whereas this is not necessarily lining their pocket. And I do think that even though people have a choice to download Parler, I do think there are legitimate questions about whether allowing it on there and allowing this kind of hate speech and, and incitement of violence onto the phone, you're on some level endorsing that. And these companies have to own it. And you see it in a lot of different contexts right now where companies are being asked hard questions about whether their business relationships are a signal that they're supporting the activity of those they have business relationships with. And, and I think in this case, it clearly is. If you're allowing Parler on the App Store, you're on some level endorsing their behavior. All right. I'm skeptical of that, but I grant you that when you're saying we don't want but porn. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. Let me go through three or four quick stories and wrap up. If you uh, feel the need to interject quickly, yeah, please do. Ransomware, if you're worried about ransomware, as we said earlier in the show, they are protected in Russia because they don't attack Russians. And the way they avoid attacking Russians is many of these ransomware programs check to see what kind of typewriter layout you're using. And if it's a Ukrainian or Russian or Kazakh layout, 
they will not encrypt the data, which raises the question, why doesn't everybody uh, install a uh, Russian typewriter uh, layout, at least as an alternative on their computers? It's, it's I, I, why I was willing to use nicotine patches as a stopgap when we were worried about COVID. I didn't see any big downside and it might work. And my guess is this won't work all the time, might not work uh, half the time, but if it works once, it's probably a pretty cheap thing to do. So Krebs on security has, has a discussion of that, and I haven't done it yet, but I'm seriously thinking about it. My big worry is that I'll log on one day and everything will be in Russian, and it might as well be encrypted, uh, and I won't know how to get out. All right, uh, there is a really good story in Wired about the uh, by Andy Greenberg about the, the RSA hack, which was now, we can now call it the original supply chain attack when they, the Chinese stole all of the seeds for all of our secure IDs from RSA and a lot of TikTok about what went on. Surprisingly, a surprising lack of conclusion about whether they actually, whether the Chinese actually got a lot out of that attack or not. RSA execs now are saying, although they didn't say it then, that they question whether the Chinese were able to do much with the seeds that they stole. Interesting question. Maybe they were able to keep certain other information about who had which device out of the hands of the, the Chinese. Hey, Stuart? Um, yep. Just to jump in uh, for your listeners, read anything that Andy Greenberg writes. Yeah, he's very in, in good. In this case, it, 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 I don't always agree with him, but he's one of the people that really digs down deep and is is thoughtful. And you can he, he it's not fake news. It's good stuff. Yeah, we've had him on in the past to talk about one of the books he wrote, and we'll probably invite him on again. Boy, end-to-end uh, -end encryption is taking a Beating in the British establishment. I had Ken McCallum went after Facebook, saying it was giving a free pass to terrorists by moving Facebook Messenger and encryption. This is the UK national security folks are much more comfortable in their place in the political establishment and frankly the estimation of the British public. And they are, I, I think. Sooner or later, they're going to whap somebody upside the head uh, seriously over end encryption and try to break the enthusiasm of Silicon Valley for it. Uh, hasn't happened yet, but when a intelligence chief calls out a major company for giving a free pass to terrorists, you aren't far from seeing that happen. And uh, a, a, an old friend of most of us is going to be joining the Justice Department from Uber. The National Security Division is going to be headed by Matt Olson. He's been going to be nominated. In fact, I think he's his nomination's already proceeding. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But he's he has he was general counsel at NSA, head of the NCTC. He's had a whole exhausting career in national security. I'm amazed that he's willing to come back and take that abuse again. And maybe it, houses really are just too expensive in Silicon Valley, and he just kept his house here. I, I and Paul, I assume you know him pretty well. Nate, did you work with? Yeah, quite a bit. And it's a great choice. We have common ground on this one. He's a fantastic lawyer and a, a fantastic human being. So good to see him back. 
All right, and now it comes to the part where I apologize for my errata. This is a never-ending task, but last week I interjected a request that Jen Daskal let me know whether she was was actually in the St. Elizabeth cell that was used by Roscoe Pound. Roscoe Pound was the dean of the Harvard Law School for many years. And while he might have been crazy and almost certainly had fascist tendencies, he was never in St. Elizabeth. That was... Oh, yes. <laughs> Stuart, I just stopped you then. Yeah, I I would have appreciated it because, of course, it was Ezra Pound, a famous compatriot of T.S. Eliot, a, a an enthusiastic poet and an enthusiastic fascist apologist, uh, really a remarkable apologist for uh, uh, fascism, uh, uh, who was saved by the American establishment that said, uh, oh, why don't we just pretend he's crazy for 10 years and then, uh, then we can keep him from getting tried for treason. And that's what they did. He got he got off. But Roscoe Pound has my deepest apology. And whatever your defamation lawyers want me to say, I will say. Finally, everybody who's listening, if you've got suggestions for other things I got wrong or suggestions for things we ought to do right, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Leave us a rating if you could. Leave us a review. We'll read it on the air. Thanks to Sound, uh, Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 363 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson.